Today, we're gonna be talking about adoption. And as probably most of you know, the age of first-time parents all over the world, but especially in this country, is rising, especially in Western countries. And as couples wait longer to have children, fertility is becoming an increasing issue. And so those who struggle with getting pregnant, adoption is a possibility. But I know in Chinese culture and most Asian cultures that adoption is frowned upon. In China, uh, like blood ties run thick. So for instance, a, a therapist who works, with, who works with autistic children in Beijing said, in China, the first and foremost connection is by blood. Blood is thicker than everything. Blood trumps everything. And in ancient China, you might adopt an orphan within your village, but by the process of adoption, you're saying, hey, this person is now becoming part of my tribe. And so you kind of only adopt within a tribe. And by the way, that tribal kind of like affiliation and association is super, super powerful in Eastern cultures because Chinese people and really tribal people in general, cultures that have a long history, are suspicious of anyone that is outside of their tribe. Okay, and so the stigma of adoption today isn't that someone wants to adopt you. The stigma of adoption today is that at the beginning point of your life, you were not wanted. You were not wanted. And there are various reasons why people give people up, people give their children up for adoption. The most common reason throughout history is because of economic reasons. It's because you couldn't afford to have a kid. And then there's also reasons about future plans because children are a dreadful inconvenience. Okay, they will alter any kind of plans that you have for a career and personal autonomy and freedom. They are an inconvenience. Um, then there's the vulnerability of women in this as well. Because for a guy, it's easy to walk away, but when the life of someone is growing inside of you, it's a lot more, it's very difficult to walk away from that. And that's part of the, uh, the abortion debates that we have and controversy that we have today. And then there's just the readiness to face parenthood. It is a big responsibility to raise a child. And maybe the toughest thing to do, the toughest aspect regarding adoption is that um, as an adopted child, you don't always know the reason why you may have been adopted or the reason you were given up for adoption. So um, I think when my dad preached, or I don't know if he said it when he was preached. I, I don't remember when he's shared about it in, the, in a preaching context. But my dad was adopted. And my dad chose to tell us when, he was, when I, we were in our 30s. And I remember um, when he first told us, I did not have a great response. I said, because he, what he said was, I didn't, I didn't want to tell you when you were younger, because he had known for years. He said he didn't want to tell us when we were younger, because he's like, you know what? I didn't want to affect, I didn't want to change your view of yourself. I didn't want to alter how you viewed yourself and how valued you were as children. And my first thought when he said that, and I think I, I, think I voiced this to him. I have that problem where that voice, that, you know, a thought goes through my head and just instantly comes out of my mouth. Um, but the thing that I said to him at that moment was, oh, dad, that's fine. You were adopted, not us. <laughs> this affects how you see yourself, but it doesn't affect how we see ourselves. So super not compassionate response. I know it's kind of crazy that I'm a pastor, um, but um, super not compassionate response. Um, but upon reflection, and maybe I think weeks and maybe months later, um, with the help of the Holy Spirit working in me, I thought about what he said. And I thought about what it meant to him. And I realized there must be some deep, deep, shame that came from the stigma of being adopted, that the people who were responsible for his existence didn't want to keep him. 
And I wonder if that shame ran so deeply in him that he wondered, wow, maybe this stigma, this, this stench is so deep in me that it'll rub off on my children, that they'll experience that sense of not being wanted as well. And so I think that's the biggest question, right, when it comes to adoption is, what does it mean then as a child to be wanted? I mean, that is, a, that is an existential, by definition, existential question. What does it mean for the people who brought you into being? What does it mean for them to want you, to want you to exist? And we're going to explore that question today in this passage in Romans chapter 8. We are going through the book of Romans, and we're actually going to be, this will be our last um, in Romans for some time. We're going to take a break through the rest of summer and then come back to Romans in the fall. So if you have your Bibles or your scripture journal, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read Romans 8, 12 through 17. Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's the reading of the passage today. I'm going to, as usual, I'm going to have three points. One's going to be about debt slavery, another about adoption, and the last one about our inheritance, what it means to have an inheritance as adopted sons and daughters. Okay, so this first idea, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, as I've mentioned, there is a theme of adoption throughout this chapter, and that, that theme continues beyond this passage. It goes through the end of the chapter as well. But one of the themes here that's employed is you see this flesh concept, which is also an idea that Paul has been expanding on in the book of Romans throughout chapter 8. And this idea of flesh is that there's something about the law, there's something about having this moral standard that awakens something in us, the sinful nature that we have, that, that is dead because we're new in Christ, but can be incited by having this moral standard. It gets, it gets uh, triggered, you could say. It gets triggered um, by our flesh, okay, when we are in contact with the law. And so there's this idea here that Paul's introducing that you can be a debtor. Okay, and this idea of debtor is that you have found yourself in some kind of obligation to another person. And this language of debt actually, I think, can link, doesn't have to, but it can link to slavery. Because in the ancient Near East, it was possible for you to sell yourself into slavery, right? Either because of your parents' debts, your, the parents could sell their child into indentured servitude. Right, where they could be sold into slavery. And so what Paul's talking about here is you can have a debt, you can have an obligation to someone and live according to that obligation. 
You can be a debtor to the flesh. You can serve absolutely the flesh and this sinful nature. And yet what Paul is saying is you do not have to do that. You are not under any obligation to serve that kind of cosmic force within you, that sin that Paul talks about in Romans 7, that also includes our beliefs and behaviors. You are not a slave to that. And so when you see debtor, you can also think back to Romans chapter 6, where it talks about you are no longer a slave to sin, but you're a slave to Christ. And that is still true, even in Romans 8. After you go through Romans 7, it's still true that you are no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to that cosmic force. And so to repeat Paul from the previous passage, this consequence of living in the flesh, it says in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so it says this interesting thing, the consequence of living according to the flesh is death. And we'll talk about that means what that means, because it probably doesn't mean physical death, because we all experience physical death. It's probably talking about a different kind of death, a different kind of outcome or consequence. And then it says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this is an interesting paradox about the Christian life, that no matter what you do, you have death in your life, right? Either you live by the flesh and the consequence is death, or you live by the Spirit and you have to put to death the deeds of the body. So no matter what, you're surrounded by death. And I think this is really important because as we, get, as we go through Romans 8, it talks about this idea of suffering, and suffering is inevitable. So no matter what, whether you're a Christian or not, you will suffer. And that's going to be a point that comes to the end of this, at the end of this passage, that we suffer, that part of our privilege is suffering with Christ. And so let me, let me be straight with you. If you look at the Christian life as a way to avoid suffering, I have bad news. It always involves suffering. We're always surrounded by suffering. It's whether you suffer as a consequence of your own evil actions or whether you suffer for doing good, but you will suffer. You will experience suffering. Okay, I see some people smiling. Maybe it's the married, married people, newlywed people. <laughs> you, will, you, will experience, you will experience suffering in this life. So what does it mean then? Let me give an example. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now let me give, um, let me give an example of what this might look like. Now, when Judy and I first got married, we started leading small groups from the very beginning. And oftentimes, when in the process of leading, um, Judy would correct something that I said. And if she corrected me during the group, I would get super defensive and embarrassed. Okay, and I think she noticed. She noticed that I would get super defensive and embarrassed, and so she, then she would then correct me after the group was over. And then I would get super defensive and embarrassed <laughs> afterwards. And so there was really no way that she could give me feedback that it wouldn't get defensive or embarrassed. And so about 15 years ago, when I started going to therapy, one of the things um, my therapist said, and he's a follower of Jesus, and he's a former Christian college professor, and he said, he said to me, and this, this kind of floored me, he says, what if you considered your wife's feedback as a sign of intimacy? Like, she doesn't say that to everyone. She, she says that to you because she feels close enough to you. It's kind of what they say about parents and their, their, their um, infant children that when a kid cries with you, they feel comfortable enough to cry, right? So the fact that Judy says something to you and gives you feedback is a sign of intimacy. She cares. And the second is, would you also consider that the feedback she's giving you is helping you become a better leader? It's helping you become a better leader. 
And I knew at that point, I knew my therapist was totally right. I just knew that I couldn't access that emotion. I could not access that kind of feeling in the moment when my wife is saying something to me. Um, but with the help of the Spirit of God, I, w I began, and I wouldn't say it was immediate, but I began to follow this principle, that if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So what that means is I have an initial instinct to react and be defensive, and I have to crucify that instinct. I have to put it to death. I have to kill it. Okay, that's what it says. Put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so that instinct for reactiveness, I have to, um, I don't know, stab it, okay? I'm going to come up with some violent, I have to stab that thing, that stab, that reactive instinct, so that it does not, so I'm not indebted in it under its power, but under a different power, the power of the Spirit. Because no matter what, you are going to be surrounded by death. You either have the consequence of death in your life, and by the way, the consequence of my defensiveness and reactiveness in my marriage was isolation and disconnection from my wife. Like, we just didn't enjoy she didn't enjoy being around me, and I didn't enjoy being around her because I saw her as unsafe, right? And that's always the consequence of death. When we talk about spiritual death, it's alienation and disconnection. And now as, as I was able in the spirit to crucify the deeds of the flesh, which is to crucify my reactiveness, God began to show me the ways in which she was helping me uh, become a better leader and become less ashamed and defensive. And so now, um, in this past year, in the life group that I'm leading, if she calls me out, I just, I get angry and upset, but I also kind of laugh at myself, right? And our whole, our whole group kind of laughs at how I kind of get defensive, like fake defensive and stuff like that. Um, but I love it. I really appreciate it because now I'm able to, I'm able to hear it um, through walking in the spirit and putting to death that reactiveness. Okay, so that's 13. Put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. You will experience fellowship. You will experience freedom you will experience closeness and intimacy, right? Now, I'm going, to keep, I'm going to keep reading, verses 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, it's interesting what Paul does here. We talk about faith leading to a change in behavior, but it almost is like the opposite, what Paul is saying is that if you're led by the Spirit of God, that makes you a son of God. And the way that I would describe this is it's almost like the book of James, that it's the evidence of being a son or daughter is that you are led by his Spirit. The way that you can tell that you are a son or that you are a daughter, son or daughter of the Most High King is that you are led by the Spirit of God, that you can tell a follower of Jesus by his or her practices. And so you have this inward act of faith that has an external, that you can view externally, right? And that's what it means, that if you're led by the Spirit of God, you are a son of, you are a son of God. And what Paul is hoping to communicate, to convey to both Jews and Gentile followers of Jesus is that you have an assurance. You can receive an assurance as a follower of Jesus that you are his child. And then in verse 15, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And so we need to take a minute here, and we need to understand what is this spirit of slavery talking about. This is, again, this is not the first time that Paul has introduced slave language. In Romans 6, we talked about what it means to be a slave to sin. And I talked about what it's like to have like this cosmic force, a.k.a. venom, inside of you, impelling you, giving, um, speaking to you to do evil thoughts, to have evil thoughts and evil behaviors, right? And that cosmic force 
You know, sometimes we don't want to take responsibility for it, and yet we are responsible for what's happening inside of us and the, the result of that. But here's what's interesting here. Here's what's interesting in this passage. There's a spirit of slavery. Verse 15, it says a spirit of slavery. How do you think about that? What are some ways to understand the spirit of slavery? I think of the term atmosphere or vibe. Okay, what is the vibe, right? What are the feels? What is the, what is the emotional climate of something? That is the spirit. So what is the spirit of slavery? Well, the emotional climate of slavery is that it is fear. And what is, what is the deal with fear? Well, if you're a slave, you're considered property. You have no rights or recourse. Or recourse. You have low or no status. You can, be ab- you can be abused. You can be exploited and beaten. There's little protection for you. And it's hard not to think about that in terms of fear. And there's a constant fear of punishment, of not living up to a standard, the sense that you can never improve your status. And then most of all, when you are a slave, your legacy, anything that you create or produce or any kind of possessions, it doesn't belong to you. It cannot be passed down. And so maybe I want to, maybe you can imagine with me, is it possible to be a slave even if you're a child? Even if you're a child of natural, if you're a natural born child? So being the child of immigrant parents, I remember hearing my dad's stories of poverty, and he would tell me his rags to riches story. And he sold me on this narrative from the very beginning that um, the reason why he was able to do what he did was, was because he worked hard, and he achieved, and he got a college education. And so I lived in fear, partly out of punishment because of my dad, because he would do the silent treatment on me when I didn't get straight A's, which was always. Um, he would do it for a couple days. And I always felt like I was under this kind of impossible standard that I felt enslaved by. And it hit me recently as I was, uh, I was, I was in a spin class for the first time. And the, um, the instructor in the spin class had just had his first Father's Day. And he was like super excited. He was super, super excited about his first Father's Day. He's like, oh man, um, I have an infant son. He's going to turn one soon. And I just feel this profound joy. This such a depth of being a dad. Such, such incredible delight. And I remember sitting there, and I'm kind of suffering, right, on the, in the spin class, you know? And I'm like, I did not feel that. I did not feel that back then. I didn't feel that now because I don't feel like I'm a good father. I don't feel like I'm a good father. I don't feel like I live up to the standard of what it means to be a father. And I didn't feel that back then, and I don't, I don't feel it today. Because there is this sense, because of how hard my dad worked and how he was always telling me about it, that it was almost as if he was living his life to erase the stigma of being adopted. It was almost like he wanted to work hard enough so that he could prove himself worthy of being wanted by his biological parents. And that stench was so strong that it rubbed off on me where I felt like I had to prove myself of being worthy to be wanted. That I also had to work just as hard as he did and have the same rags to riches story, which of course I was never gonna replicate. And so it always felt like this impossible standard. So I just want you to know, I just want you to imagine you don't have to have been adopted to experience or be, be an orphan to have an experience of not being wanted, of living up to or trying to live up to some kind of impossible standard where you couldn't meet it. And so um, I just want you to imagine that. I want you to imagine that there are ways in which we can live in fear 
and be a, be, have the spirit of slavery into fear without actually have been an orphan or going through this process of adoption. And what I think is if there's only a way to become a fully grown adult without having to have the baggage of childhood, right? It wouldn't be great to be a fully grown adult, just like bypass everything you went through in childhood. Um, and what's, what's amazing is that there actually is a way. Okay, there actually is a way. Because in the second half of this verse, it says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit of adoption as sons. Now, what's interesting, in Jewish culture, there wasn't really a practice of adoption. So it wasn't exactly a thing within Jewish culture, kind of like Chinese culture. It wasn't really that popular. But in Roman culture, there was a practice of adoption. In Roman culture, there was a practice of adoption. And the interesting thing about the way adoption was practiced is it actually meant two things. Number one, you could not disown the child. If you adopted a child, you, would not, you could not disown it. And, here, and here's what's interesting. In Roman culture, you could disown a child. You could disown a child, that a biological child whom you didn't like for whatever reason. So you can get rid of a biological child, but an adopted child, you couldn't. And the reason why you could not get rid of an adopted child is because the child was wanted. It was chosen. And the way Roman culture practiced adoption is you were adopted as an adult. Okay, you're adopted as an adult. And so oftentimes it was the very rich, it was the rich and the upper classes, and particularly senators, who, who, adopted, um, who would adopt adult children. And the reason why is it was difficult. It could be difficult to have kids. They're expensive, like I said. And often biological children can be, can be hit or miss. Okay, can be hit or miss. And what, I mean, <laughs> and what I mean by that is you just look at the history of Israel within the Bible, okay? And you have a king, and then this king has a son, and the son's terrible, okay? The king is awesome, and then the son is terrible, and the king commits all these like super bad crimes and um, does all these really bad things, right? So, so the problem is succession. You need to pick a worthy successor, right? And the problem is when you have biological kids, you didn't really pick them, okay? You didn't really pick them. And so as these senators are thinking, who is going to inherit all of my wealth? Who's going to inherit what, all of my wealth? Who's going to succeed me in, in the estate? And they may not have children, and they may have chosen not to have children because, like I said, bio biological kids can be hit or miss. Um, they're like, hey, you know what? what it, wouldn't it be awesome if we could pick who our successor could be and inherit all of our wealth and continue, on, continue the family legacy. So what these Roman senators would do is they would adopt a male heir, okay, an heir, who would, who would have all the inheritance and carry forward. And one of the most um, um, famous adoptees is Augustus. I think he's the, one of the first Roman emperors. Okay, he was adopted. He was chosen because, again, it's all about succession and picking someone capable. And so when Paul is talking about the spirit of adoption as sons, he's not talking about the way we think, like adopting a cute baby. He's talking about adoption as sons as the full, you get the full rights of inheritance, and he's talking about adult adoption. And so let me read the last two verses, which continue on this theme of adoption. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
So you notice in verse 17, it talks about being an heir, which is having the inheritance, having the inheritance. And then in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And this interesting idea of bearing witness, witness is legal language. It's legal language. And what, he's, what Paul is saying here is that this is true about you, even if you don't feel it, okay? That the Spirit himself bear, bears witness with our spirit that we are his children, even if you don't experience that emotion in your life. And I think just as I discussed, one of the reasons I have trouble experiencing the love of God as my father is because it's been difficult for me to experience my earthly father's love as well. And so we all have obstacles that keep us from experiencing the love of God and helping us experience what it means to be his children. And yet what this is saying is the Spirit himself bears witness, testifies. The word is testify in the legal sense that we are children of God. He testifies with our spirit. There's something in us, the Spirit of God, that's testifying along with our spirit that we are his children. And he goes on, and of children than heirs, and an heir means you get the full inheritance, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And as I said earlier about putting to death and that whenever you put something to death, it's a kind of suffering. So absolutely, living the Christian life involves a type of suffering, and this makes it explicit. In verse 17, it says, that you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. And as I've discussed, you, you will experience all kinds of hardship. I have, a, I have a friend right now, and I know some of you have this sense that the things that you've experienced in life, especially the suffering, it doesn't quite match up to what you see as your potential or your ability. And that for whatever reason, God has placed obstacles in your life or pain, or suffering, or illness in a way that blocks you, that inhibits you from experiencing his love. And I have a friend who, who he's just really wrestling with this idea. He does, not, he does not believe God loves him at all. In fact, he believes God spites him, like has spite for him, and intentionally does things to interfere and mess with his life. And maybe you have some of that as well. And, uh, and what's so difficult is that some of that suffering, I believe for him, is self-inflicted. It's self-inflicted. It's because he has this perspective that God has to reward him. But I also want you to know that even if you were to get rid of that mentality, it doesn't mean his life is going to get easier. Your life as a Christian doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easier. As you continue to walk with Jesus, you will experience suffering. And part of that suffering is because you are putting to death the deeds of your body. And one of the reasons why you do those deeds is because they feel good and they've helped you survive, okay? That instinct of defensiveness has helped me survive. It helps me be competitive, okay? And it's helped me to, to do well. And yet it results in alienation and death. And so I'm gonna, I, I have chosen to suffer and I pray that I would continue to by putting to death the mis misdeeds of the body, but I recognize that pain is involved in that journey. And so suffering is a natural consequence of walking in the Spirit. As you walk in the Spirit, you will suffer. You will experience persecution. You will experience pain from putting to death the misdeeds of the body. You will also experience, you will experience doubt. You know, Daisy was giving a testimony about doubt. You will experience doubt. That's also part of the suffering 
of what it means to be a Christian, you will need to navigate doubt and uncertainty. So let me go to one more idea. This is, I'm going to go back to verse 15, this idea of Abba, Father. And I want to read a parallel passage in Galatians. I've been going back and forth through Galatians you know, as we've gone through Romans because there's so many similarities. And yes, Paul also wrote Galatians. Let me go to chapter 4. I'm going to read 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And again, you can read that as adult sons. And because you are adult sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And let me talk one more thing. As we, as we, I didn't talk what it means to have this inheritance. What this inheritance means is that you have a secure future. Okay, that's what an inheritance is. It's a secure future. Sure, it means stuff, and we get lots of eternal stuff, but at the end of the day, it means you have a secure future in eternity and in intimacy and a relationship with God the Father. That's what an inheritance means. That's the inheritance that we receive. And now I want to spend a little time in closing talking about this Abba Father idea. And it says there's a spirit in us that cries out, Abba Father. I think language is fascinating. Language is, is, a, is a fascinating thing. And part of what um, I do in premarital counseling is that I ask a couple to, um, I ask them what they call their respective parents. And what I do is I say to the husband, you need to call your father-in-law what your wife calls her parents, okay? And I practiced that myself. That was the, that was the instruction that was given to me as I went through premarital counseling. And so um, when my pastor, Tom, counseled us, Judy and I, he said, he said, Judy, what do you call your parents? And she said, Daddy and Mommy. Daddy and Mommy. And I thought, oh, man. That's not really what I was going for. <laughs> That's not really what I was going for. Um, but I said, you know, but I, but I was like, okay, at least, because I call my parents Mom and Ba. Ba is short for Baba, which in Mandarin means Daddy, right? And so that's, we had a separate set you know, of names for my parents, and then we had another set for um, her parents, which is mommy and daddy. Um, and so that, from that point forward, after we got married, I called um, her dad, daddy. And one time we went to play basketball um, in Northridge, um, like some pickup basketball. And we're on the courts and we're surrounded by all these guys. And you know, basketball atmosphere is kinda, it's, you know, it's not maybe super toxic, but you know, it's, pretty manly, right, or supposedly. And so um, I'm shooting around, and like, I'm like, Daddy, pass me the ball, you know, or good shot, Daddy. And so that was, um, that was my experience. And you know, I look, up, I look back on that with like a lot of regret and shame, um, but I would do it again. Okay, I would do it again. Because you think, you think when you read this, when it says Abba, Abba is an intimate term for father, okay? You think when you read this, 
we're talking about like an infant son, okay? This is like a baby son. No, this is adult son on the basketball court, son, okay? This is adult son on the basketball court. And this is what I think is, I think, important. Because we often, it's easy to trash Asian cultures to, be, to being like lacking affection. But when it comes to family relationships, it's actually super close. It's actually close and intimate in a way a lot of Western cultures don't understand. And so I want you to keep this idea, even, um, and I just think it's fascinating also within language that many of the terms for father, they go with like Abba in some way, like Baba, or, an in, or I think it's in some Indian uh, languages, Appa, okay? They're all like very similar in the sound of what it means to say daddy. And so I don't know what speaks to you. For me, in, in Mandarin, it's Baba, okay? And it means to cry out, right, in desperation. And you have the spirit of adoption in you that cries out Baba or Abba, which is a sign of intimacy and affection and that you have a secure inheritance and a future hope with him. And so let me share one more passage. I don't have, I don't have the slides for it, um, but it's in Matthew 3.16. It's about Jesus' baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The sharing prompt today is for you to share an image or an experience that speaks adoption to you, okay? The spirit of adoption. And I just want you to take a second. Would you just close your eyes with me? And could you just imagine the voice of the spirit in your heart in the same way that the Spirit of God came down on Jesus and said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Would you imagine the Spirit of God coming down to rest on you as a follower of Jesus? This is my Son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit inside of us crying out, Abba, Baba, Father, Daddy. Lord, thank you that we have a secure inheritance in you. We have a future hope that even in our moments of darkness and loneliness and death, when we feel disconnected, that you wanted us, that you chose us, that you found us worthy of the inheritance to pass on the legacy. Thank you that you have given us your spirit to testify within us that we are worthy, that we are wanted, and that you delight in us. Would we remember that in our moment of weakness, of powerlessness, when we are disconnected? We pray this in your name. Amen.